Hi, and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations about issues emanating from psychiatry that impact society, as well as discuss societal issues that have potential implications for mental health and emotional well-being. My guests include thought leaders from both within the discipline of psychiatry and beyond. Beyond Madness is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. Journalists are facing threats and hostility in more countries than ever before. This is according to this year's World Press Freedom Index, which is an annual report published by Reporters Without Borders. The index analyzes legal and physical threats to journalists, and today's episode focuses on a potential consequence emotional difficulties, and compromised well-being. So joining me for today's episode, entitled, which I've entitled, Journalism, Journalists, and Mental Wellness, I have the pleasure of my panel. Starting on my left, we've got Katie Katapodis. Now, Katie has told me, simply to say, she's the chair of the South African National Editors Forum's Journalism, Wellness, and Safety Committee. Welcome. Next to Katie, we have Katleho. I get that right. Sehoto. She's a qualified journalist with eight years of experience as a radio field reporter, anchor, and host. She has multiple awards and nominations, and she's currently at Kaya 959. Welcome. And last but not least, Amit Kaji. Amit is an award-winning journalist himself. He currently works at Newsroom Africa. I see you, Voice of Wits. Yes, started off in 2015. Always used to listen to Voice of Wits when I was a student many, many years ago. And then from there, he went on to Eyewitness News. He's covered many crises, from the water crisis to the World Cup, which it wasn't a crisis. <laughs> Been to Mozambique to cover the cyclone in 2019. And most recently, and I think this is what we're going to be looking at, is your involvement and your deployment to the earthquake in, uh, in Turkey. So welcome to my guests and, uh, of course, to all of you. And I'm not used to doing this. I was once in a school play called Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. And I always quote this. My opening line, I gave the opening line. I played Hasarek. And the opening line was, unaccustomed as I am to public speaking. And I didn't realize in Standard 5, Grade 7, that I would be doing a lot of public speaking. So I became quite accustomed, actually. So I want to start by reading an article uh, from News24, written by Jenna Etheridge back in June of 2017. And... It's an article and was an event that, 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 that caught my attention then, and as I read through it, it still kind of touches me, actually. So you may be familiar, some of you might not be. The article was entitled, Broken Heart Syndrome Kills SAB8 Journalist Suna Fenta. So this is the story of Suna Fenta. So the body of senior radio producer Suna Fenta, one of the SABC8 journalists, was discovered at her flat in Fairland, Johannesburg, on Thursday morning, her family confirmed. Fenter, 32, had recently been diagnosed with a cardiac condition known as stress cardiomyopathy, or broken heart syndrome, which could cause rapid and severe heart muscle weakness. The family believed this had been caused by trauma and prolonged periods of unnatural stress. Those closest to her believed that her condition was exacerbated, if not caused, by the events of the past year. She was part of a group of eight SABC journalists who were fired and seven later reinstated for objecting to former COO, Claudia Motswening's policy of no longer airing footage of violent protests. 
their reinstatement and a subsequent parliamentary ad hoc committee investigation into the affairs of the SABC were lauded as a victory. Despite this, she was the victim of continued intimidation, victimization, and death threats. Fenter was shot in the face with a pellet gun at the beginning of the year after coming out of a restaurant in Linden, Johannesburg, while buying takeaway food. She received surgery to remove the metal pellets from her face. Over the past year, she also received threatening messages on her phone. Her flat was broken into on numerous occasions. The brake cables of her car were cut and her car's tires were slashed. She was shot at and abducted, tied to a tree at Melville Copies while the grass around her was set alight, her family said. During the past year, she was assaulted on three various occasions. Fenter had joined the SABC as a producer at RSG's Current Affairs eight years ago. The show's executive producer, Futa Kricha, said that she'd been passionate about international news and current affairs from the start. She was involved with Gift of the Givers in various humanitarian missions in Libya, Gaza, Egypt, and Syria. She cared so much about the situation in Syria that she took leave right after the war began to report for RSG from the front lines, said Kricha. She remained passionate about the welfare of the children she encountered on these assignments up until her death. It was revealed that Fenter's main aim had been to establish an independent newsroom free from editorial interference within the embattled public broadcaster. Kricher said Fenter had been one of the most dedicated and passionate journalists. Doctors had advised her to leave her stressful working environment, but she apparently replied, she cannot go before the battle is won. She survived by her parents, Philip and Christa Fenter, and siblings, Wilhelm and Tessa. So commitment, it's a hell of a story. I think you would acknowledge. I'm not too sure how many people think or remember or even know, actually. So for me, this is about commitment, passion, trauma, stress, physical consequence, death. So in a way, I think the story of, 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 of Suna Fenta captures a lot about what we want to talk about today. Not least of all, the system in terms of prejudice and threat and responsibility for employee well-being, actually. Katie, your thoughts. Thank you, Prof. Um, thank you for reading that, actually, because we tend to forget. Yes. And this is what happens. I think, you know, we often call it a news cycle in South Africa. I call it a news cyclone. Right. We are all swept up, journalists, readers, viewers alike. We are swept up in this cyclone of one very traumatic story after the next. And so it doesn't quite give you that time to process, to think, to take in. Actually, as terrible as this is to sound, just to say, I'd forgotten about the detail of yeah. Sinofenta. and I think that's the shocking part. It is. is. Actually, when you get into the detail, you're thinking, oh, my word, what did she go through? So I forgot about that exact detail, despite the fact that as SANEF, we were very heavily involved with the SABC8. Right. Very heavily involved in supporting them, in helping them. So we're in the cyclone of trauma that is very much the life of a journalist, but it's also very much the context of a country that we live in. So the reality is that South Africa is facing some enormous difficulties right now, and there's no shying away from that. And we're, some would argue, on a bit of a tipping point. Others would say, oh, but journalists love bad news, and if it bleeds, it leads. I have a totally different view to that. It is our job to mirror society and to reflect what's happening. And so if a little girl, three-year-old child, dies because the inverter didn't have enough time to charge because of constant load shedding. It is our responsibility, actually, to tell that story 
or else her death will be in vain. Absolutely. And that's a shocking story. That was about two days ago, I yes. think, it broke. And I remember seeing the picture of her and I thought, ah, you know, what a tragedy. Yeah. And, you know, we just talk about load shedding and inverters and adaptation. My late stepfather had chronic obstructive airways disease. And when this first started, I remember my mother saying, we've got to get solar because he cannot have a guaranteed oxygen supply. And that was my first introduction. I thought, all right, we'll go solar. And then I read the story of this little girl and I thought, "Ah, there it is, you know? And that's just an absolute horror. And I I think part of the problem for me is exactly what you're saying. We just keep moving because it's the next and the next and the next. Where does it end? I don't know that it does. I don't think it can in the newsroom. No, I think that's what the newsroom is there for, right? Is to is to is to bring it, and 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 in a sense, I think of journalists as as as, as truth seekers. You have to seek the truth, and I remember watching a, a, a documentary on the life of Roberto Saviano. I don't know if you know who he is. He's the guy who infiltrated and penetrated the mafia, and he wrote a book in two thousand and six called Gomorrah. He's been in police custody or police protection ever since. Can't be with his family. He lives a solo life with the police. And I think to myself, that is commitment. And so we watch the documentary and it's kind of interesting, but that's a life lived. And that's a consequence of what he has done. So for me, you know, journalism, I take it seriously. But you know, there's this idea or understanding potentially that it's very action driven and there's almost glamorized view of, of journalism, war, crime, all of the rest. I think it's a romanticized version because I think the reality is a little, like, little bit like L.A. law and lawyers. I think law is quite boring, actually, unless you're in the court. But I think it's very similar in the sense that we've got this view of journalists just go out there. and Ahmed, you've just come back from Turkey. So I was going to mention disasters because I think that people cannot fully appreciate the scope and the destruction and the devastation. So I'm putting you on the spot now to just share with us your experience? I think even as a journalist going into a disaster zone such as Turkey, you don't really appreciate what you are going to see until you actually are on the ground. Right. Um, our flight on Turkish Airways, we are still monitoring the news from there. From the Monday when we had found out, look, there was this earthquake. You're going through social media. You're going through uh, the TV stations to see exactly what exactly is happening on the ground. But once you finally land and you get to ground zero, seeing an entire city destroyed, not perhaps Johannesburg South, Johannesburg North, Johannesburg East, an entire city completely destroyed. Um, Before we started recording, my producer Dori had shown me, maybe you'll tell us a little bit about it. There's a, a documentary, I think, that's been made. And I mean, they capture the footage of the buildings collapsing and it's looking like an implosion. And it's unbelievable, actually. So sorry, I just jumped in there because I, I want you to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we had put together a documentary. It aired about uh, two months ago as well, The Voice of the Rescuers, right. uh, to speak about their experiences. Uh, but just going back to what mm. we had seen on the ground, um, firstly, you put into context that this earthquake struck at 4 o'clock in the morning. Um, because it's the winter months in Turkey, the morning prayers are only about 6 a.m. So it's in the deep of the night. Right. Everyone is still asleep. Um, and literally two massive earthquakes strike at the same time. And when you see buildings, which are more or less 10 or 11-story buildings, down to probably the height of two or three two or three stories, you know that that's 10 stories worth of people who've just been crumpled onto each other, 1,000, 2,000 people in one apartment block. And there's 10 or 
10, 15, 20,000 of those buildings. Um, and that's when the devastation really kicks in. Um, and with the first few body bags, when you start seeing people being pulled out and the devastation that you're seeing the survivors coming through, that that is really sobering really quick. Um, nothing prepares you for that. So you nothing at all. driven up to the site? How did you get there? So as, I mean, as journalists, yeah. when you're firstly on ground zero, you're going through the entire experience with the rescue workers. So you're eating what they're eating. There's no accommodation. So you're sleeping in the parking lot of a stadium uh, in tents at minus six or minus 10 right. degrees or so. That's the overnight. So you can only begin to imagine what the survivors and the victims must be going through as well, trapped under all of that rubble. Um, but we actually had arrived, we had left on the Tuesday evening Right. After the earthquake, the earthquake struck on Monday morning. Okay. Um, when we had arrived in Istanbul, we only managed to make it through to ground zero on Thursday. Um, the logistical issues, the roads were closed. We took a, we left on one morning from, uh, on the way to Antakya, from where we were in Adana. That's about a 200 kilometer drive, 175. It took us 10 hours on one traffic jam. We stood in the, in this traffic jam and it, was literally probably the equivalent of uh, Harrismith down to Ladysmith or so, normal right. 200 kilometer, a similar type of road as well with the windy, bendy roads going through. Um, and that's just sirens going down. And this really puts into, into context the magnitude of what we were going into. Um, but once you reach ground zero and the first day we get deployed out to all of those buildings, um, it's... Yeah, so you've never seen anything like this before? You get out of the car and this is what's in front of you? You get out of the car and there's a 360-degree view of absolute destruction. Whatever buildings are still up, they're completely compromised. You know that no one is going to live in that building ever again. Um, and it's the small things that you see, a person's headboard, a baby's toy, mm. a shoe, mm. you know, just those small a blanket, a colorful blanket. Um, that's the, that's, that really sticks with you. And that's before rescuers even start the operations because... They're going through the structural integrity, whether it's actually safe to get through to a body. Right. Um, I mean, you get families calling on you, even as media saying, look, can you give me a tent? I have no food. I have no clothing. Can you assist? Now, as a journalist, you're part of a natural, you're part of the relief team, right. but you're also very separate from that. There's so many things to consider, but seeing that disaster and seeing that loss of life. So your first emotion as you get out and you see this? I think it's shock. Mm. Yeah, just very, very shocked about exactly what's what's going on and seeing the survivors going through the difficulty of waiting for their loved ones, yeah. that puts it into context. This could have been my mother, this could have been my father, my sister. Um, and I think the difficulty which many of the survivors faced, and it's something I battle with until today, is that you go to bed sleeping next to your partner. Um, you go to bed seeing your child and when the body is pulled out five or six or seven days later, mm-hmm. that body is inflamed. It's blue. Yes. It's purple. Um, you're in the medical field. You right. obviously understand uh, you know, the, the biology around that. And understanding that the person you saw the night before and what you're going to see once that body is pulled out must be absolutely devastating. Um, and it's even more hurtful and heartbreaking when you find out that it's a three or four year old right. baby that's when it really hits home so you're witness to all of this yeah um yeah i think the first sunday uh, we do our first deployment was on the friday we had left 
um, the Sunday was when it was a full day of just bodies being retrieved. Mm. Every every building and every site we stopped at, there was body bags coming out. And at times, it's not even the formal body bags which you see on normal crime scenes or any other disaster zone. It's no silver blankets. It's being pulled out in a sheet. Absolutely. You know, and sometimes it's two bodies in one sheet being put into a, bit of a digger and then taken down across. Um, one one thing that will stick with me, and I think about it almost every day, we had spoken to... Uh, a person who stayed in, a, in an apartment block, and he said when he felt the earthquake, he wasn't wearing any clothes. He actually just ran out of his, his, his apartment block. Um, and the soldiers had given him some clothing. And while we were speaking to him, the rescue workers had pulled out three bodies, uh, a mother, a father, and a three-year-old child. And as he spoke, as he was speaking to us and telling us, look, this is... This is what happened. These are the people who came by. He said, that three-year-old child was my neighbor. She'd come to me every morning and greet me. Um, and just one more thing before I, before I wrap again on, in terms of the experiences is we spoke to a 15-year-old boy. Survivor. Um, yeah, survivor. We'd spoken to him and his, he, he was almost pensive. I don't think he actually understood the gravitas of what had happened. He said... His parents had told him, look, let's just get out of the house as quick as possible. And as they had gotten out, his parents went back in to get one of his siblings. Mm. And while he was waiting outside, the building had collapsed on, uh, had collapsed on, on them. And, um, yeah, he had this, like, I mean, he was, he was smiling, uh, but it almost that he never really understood what was going on. He was completely taken away from reality and, mm. I don't think his personality would ever recover from that. I, I think it, it's changed completely. It, um, I remember myself and uh, an SABC reporter, Chris Alda Lewis, I'm sure everyone is familiar with her. Um, we were very emotional on that day, and that was just you know, one of many instances which really, really make it difficult to be in the field. Completely understandable. Yeah. So, Katleho, you've got your own experiences that have troubled you. Yes. And um, from human tragedy to unrest and mobs, so maybe you can share some of your more difficult moments yeah. that you've covered. Yeah, I think for me, um, about a, two years ago, there was a story, I think we all kind of know it, there was a mob attack in Zanspreet mm. where the community decided that there were drug dealers in the area took people forcibly from their homes, um, about nine young men, and I mean all between the ages of about 18 and 25, um, took them to a local sports ground and put tires around them and set them alight. Um, When you ask the community, how did you identify this person? How did you know this person was a drug dealer? The, the facts aren't clear as to how they knew that these young boys were the ones that were the culprits. Um, so of the nine, all eight died and there was one survivor. Uh, I did a lot of digging and I finally found this young boy who was about 21 at the time um, and he had survived and he... I met him and his family. 
really, he was living with his aunt. He was in hiding, so he wasn't in Zanspreit anymore. And um, then I, 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 I speak to him. I say, look, can I chat to you how, about how you survived and what's happened since then? And the first thing I identified was that he wasn't a drug dealer, but he was a drug user. Mm. So he was completely always dazed. Um, he was addicted to uh, crystal meth. And um, he then told me his story about how he ended up at that sports field. He said, one day I was with my friends and we were smoking weed or I was, he was smoking meth at the time. They barged into this house, took him. He didn't know what he had done took him to the sports ground. This is at about 2 a.m. in the morning uh, in April, I think, of 2021. And um, then he says, he explains how they poured the petrol on him, put the tire over his head. He had seen uh, the other eight being burnt, so they were being burnt one at a time. Um, And then he says the only thing that saved him is at the moment they were going to burn him, the police sirens could be heard and there were blue lights and everyone scattered and that's the only thing that saved his life. So it's this um, traumatic experience of the fact that when I'm speaking to him at that time, I could tell he's probably high at this moment. He was not well at all. And I think the thing that got to me was that he, his future just looked so bleak, even though he had survived this traumatic event. And his family, his aunt that he was living with at the time said, you know, even now he comes and goes in the house as he wants. We can't control him. We can't help him. He really needs help at a very professional level. I then tried to get a hold of social workers and government. I tried to do that work that the family couldn't do on their own mm-hmm. to no avail. Um, at least with the brother, I was working with his brother who doesn't live with him, um, but we were trying to figure out where we can take him to a rehab. Um, but really, I just saw... My own brother, you know, I have a younger brother who is about his age. And I think that trauma was like, this could be my brother. It could be anybody's uh, young son or brother. And I think I thought I was okay. That's also the thing with journalism is you almost think you're okay. Um, and then I think one day I was just parked outside a parking lot. I th- he crossed my mind and I just wept. Mm. And um, I think a lot of us think we're okay and we're not. We've become desensitized to a lot of things. Um, and to this day, I, I know, I mean, I check in with the aunt. So it's almost like it's a lifetime commitment that I've made to the family right. to just check in or on WhatsApp. Like, hey, how are you doing? How's everything? So you feel it's personal. Yes. Responsibility at some yes, level. Yes, absolutely. Which and, is technically yeah. speaking not supposed to happen. Yeah. And I'm not being critical. Yeah, yeah. Because I think there's something that I'm going to come to later on in the, in the discussion which really speaks to that. So we're really seeing how, you know, as you were talking, I thought we used to call them reporters. And for me, that sort of captured the idea that you just report. 
and it's all just the facts. But in fact, what I'm understanding, and of course I, I know that, you're humans, you experience what you see, and you don't just leave it there. You put it down, you capture it, but it comes with you. That's why I was saying to you, Amit, when you, what's your first emotion when you see this? And all of the stories are very vivid for you, and this is very vivid for you still. So, you know, I'll draw a parallel with psychiatry. Because we never speak about the traumatized psychiatrists who listen to all of the stories. Because we just don't talk about these things. Yeah. It's like, it's the job. It's what you do. So on the one hand, as a psychiatrist, you're empathic, but detached. And so you're trying to balance these two things, which are very difficult. And I think to some extent, that's what I'm hearing here. You're supposed to be detached, yeah. but you're drawn into the, hum the humanity of what is going on, yeah. the sadness the horror, actually, of what he's seen and what the other chap has said, this little girl used to come and say good morning to me, and the boy. I mean, how does he live with that? He left, they went back in, boom, that's it. It's done. So, I mean, these are very powerful experiences. And, and like I say, as a psychiatrist, when you're dealing with individuals who've been through it, you're listening to all of this, and you're getting into it, because you have to, because you've got to try to understand and yet you've got to be detached and be cool, calm, and collected, and you cannot be emotional because if you've got two wrecks in the room, it's not helpful. So somebody's got to be okay to just walk everybody through. So I'm just drawing a parallel. I'm not putting myself in your shoes, but I'm just drawing a parallel. So I wanted to, to shift focus a little bit, and I wanted to talk about threat to life because I think journalists do experience threat to life. So as much as you report on what you have, threats to life, and lives that have been taken, there are journalists who, who experience threat to life. I was listening to a, a, an interview with an embedded journalist who was with the American Marines in the Battle of Fallujah in Iraq. And I mean, he lived every moment, every shot that they took, every detonation that took place. He was with them because he, as a historian, he was there to document the history like a journalist would do. And he felt like a combat veteran. That's how he experienced it. You know, he had the flak jacket. And the only thing he didn't have was a weapon to defend himself, but he was there. And I recently came across two novels that, that, that were quite fantastic. Tolstoyevsky, Vasily Grossman. Most people haven't heard of Vasily Grossman, but he wrote two books, Life and Fate and Stalingrad. He was at the Battle of Stalingrad, Second World War. And he was an embedded journalist. He wrote for the Red Star in Moscow. He got out. And then he wrote these two novels, which were not released for many, many decades. They were censored. So I was thinking of him. He survived. But then I thought I'd bring it closer to home. Who of you remember Ken Osterbrook? Anybody? Yes, Ken Osterbrook. Killed in the line of duty, 1994. He was in Tokosa. He was covering in Carter, shootout. The National Peacekeeping Force, that was in April 1994, 11 days before the election. Next to him is somebody else I'm going to get to. It's Kevin Carter. Kevin Carter, ring a bell? The Bang Bang Club. Greg Marinovich, Joao Silva, Kevin Carter, and Ken Osterbrook. And that really brought home the fact that journalists die in the line of duty and there are consequences. So I, I kind of looked at the threat to life and I thought, well, there's situational, but there's also consequential. So this is going to bring me to the point that I wanted to raise with you. So I've looked at the consequential within the context of politics and political reporting. So I'm thinking of Jamal Khashoggi. Washington Post, walked into the uh, 
Saudi embassy, Istanbul, to get some papers so he could marry his Turkish fiance, never walked out. Murdered, dismembered, appalling. But then I bring it closer to home. I think of Karima Brown, and I think currently of Karen Moon. So we're talking about threat, and physical threat. And um, I wanted to ask you, as journalists who might be covering these kinds of stories, I mean, to some extent, there's always potential or anticipated threat or consequences. Does that influence your content? And in that sense, do we have a truly free press? Katie. That sounds a bit of a, a trick question there. No, it's not a trick question. It's just a genuine, sincere <laughs> no, question. No, it's a good question. It's actually an excellent question because the reality is it shouldn't. Right. On paper, it shouldn't. Uh, technically, it shouldn't. But when you're... There's, there's, there's something to be said about being at the scene. And Ahmed and Katlecha will know this, being on the ground. And communities feel very threatened by us. Mm. And that's the reality, particularly in the age of social media. So they feel very threatened by our cameras, by our cell phones, by our microphones and our mere presence. And that automatically puts you in danger. Mm. So in that moment, instinctively, I think it's a matter of survival. A journalist will, may retreat. And I know many who have. I have myself. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers the assassination of a political leader called Sivison Kabinda. Sivison Kabinda was assassinated in KZN many years ago. I was a very young reporter and I get this phone call early in the morning from my then editor, Nolene Marwana Sanko. And she said, you're going to KZN. And thank God she paired me with the wonderful and late Kolani Gwala. And Kolani and I went through. But it was the first time I'd ever felt that truly my life was in danger because the area of Richmond is a very flat terrain. So there were no, there were hardly any buildings, not even trees. And there was this live fire coming. The UDM was on the other side. They were going to now avenge the death of Sifison Kabinda. A family of eight had been assassinated as a result of that. So Kalani and I were walking through the house and blood just everywhere. And then we were told to leave in a very threatening way, actually. Leave and leave immediately. We didn't even get a chance to step out of the house when the live fire started. And so there we were running. I remember wearing my bulletproof vest. They are very heavy, by the way. Yeah. Like extremely yeah. heavy, extremely heavy. And, and I think it just slowed me down. And Kalani looked at me and he said, just give me your hand. And I remember grabbing his hand and we ran and we found an old car and we kind of hid behind the car. And we weren't telling the story in that moment. We were surviving. We were surviving because hiding behind that car was where we needed to be to be safe. And at some point, a little bit later, you know, we managed to go live on air and, and tell the story of what had happened. I mean, I did get a frantic call from my mother. I can imagine. Yes, yes. To go, what are you doing? What the hell are you doing exactly? For the love of God, come home. And and I lied to her. I actually lied to her in that moment. I said, Ah, mom, it's not that bad. It's just a little bit of like an exaggeration, because I needed to settle her down. Because you've got to manage all of these things as well. You're managing yourself. You're managing the the content in front of you, the story that's unfolding. And then you've got this hysterical Greek mother who's telling you to please come back to Joburg. So you're managing her as well and placating her. 
So, so I just want to ask you, yeah. could you at that moment believe what was actually happening to you? Because you'd gone in to cover a story, and the next thing you're running for your life, you're ducking behind a car, you're almost becoming the story, yeah. journalist killed on site, yeah. whilst covering stories. Yes. I mean, could you actually believe that this was happening? I mean, even though, you, even though they give you the jackets and maybe they give you the hats and you think, oh, that's all very nice, we're going to look very good, and boom, then no. it suddenly happens and it explodes in front of you. I must say, in that moment, I didn't process the real danger we were in. Yeah. It was after the fact. And I think once you get behind that car, and I even remember going, oh, my God, keep me safe. And it's that instant yeah. where you think, gosh, this is real. But while you're running, while you're fleeing, and I won't lie, I have my microphone out. Yeah, I had my microphone out. You record what you're able to record as you're trying to get to safety. But no profit. It's, you almost feel a little bit bulletproof. Yeah, yeah. Like in that moment, irrespective of the <clears throat> vest. And, and they're nodding because I see, like, you just, you feel bulletproof in that very hectic environment. You're doing the job. Yeah. I'll tell you a story. I'm not, I don't want to steal your thunder. I used to work at Tara. So I got a frantic knock on my door one day and, and they said, Prof, you've got to come. There's a, a, a patient's parent with a gun in the uh, uh, therapist's office. You've got to come. I thought, okay, I'm the only man. I've got to do it. If I go, I'm thinking, why me, why me? But anyway, I've got to do it. She's my staff and I have to go there. So I walk in and she's sitting and he's there. And I said, please come with me. And uh, he comes with me. So he's out of the room, so she's okay now. So I said, let's go for a walk. And we go for a walk and, and we sit down and I'm, I'm looking to see where is the gun. And I work out, it's on his left-hand side. He's holstered. So I said, let's go and have a seat. So I position myself next to him. His left-hand cycle. So if he reaches for that gun, I'm going to have to do something. So I'm not thinking like a psychiatrist now. I'm just thinking like somebody who's got to survive this, talking down. So I said, would you give me the gun, please? I said, I've been in the army. I know how to handle weapons. Could you, could you give me the gun, please? He said, no. I thought, no. I said, could you remove all the ammunition, please? And then just cock it to make sure that it's safe, that there's not a round in the chamber. He did that. I said, and could you put the bullets in the other pocket? He did that. And then we spoke it through. And in my mind, I'm thinking murder, suicide, murder, suicide, murder, suicide. So in that moment, you just do what you have to, and you get through it. Afterwards, you think, geez, man, I could have walked into that office, and he could have blown us both away. And that would have been that. But you don't think. You just do because that's what's required. So I'm drawing some parallels between journalism and psychiatry here. But uh, so I didn't want to steal your thunder. That's a hell of a story. Threats. Now, Juanita Hunter sent through a few comments because she knew about this uh, recording. And she spoke about online harassment, and I thought, Karima Brown. She spoke about cyber misogyny, I thought, Karima Brown. So, I mean, to what extent is that an ongoing, real phenomenon? I'll pass it to you. You know, yeah, I think when we just, uh, I was thinking while Katie was speaking about these traumatic experiences and when your life is under threat. And I remember in 2015, I was studying, but then fees must fall happened. Right. And so there was this um, weird space between being a student and thinking you want to be an activist as well, because you also want fees to fall. And um, a lot of the uh, logistical discussions were also happening on social media or like where to meet or 
um, opinions about the police being heavy-handed and also just us as a journalism class discussing how do we approach this. We're students, but we're also part of the the, the protests. So I think social media then really uh, became clear in terms of how it's such an important instrument in, first of all, organizing, but it's also dangerous. Yeah. Um, it, it highlights how people can infiltrate your conversations, people can know who are the leaders, and people can target you, um, and and also people can know where you are at a certain moment, and if they have an agenda or they have a score to settle, they know exactly where to find you. So it was tricky because as a student journalist at the time, mm. we're in close proximity to some of the student leaders at the time. Um, they have opinions. And it also does, um, it really challenges you to think as well about how you tell the story. Because one, you're in the middle of it. But two, you're also um, trying to be, to, trying to have a bird's eye view of it. And are you expected to have a specific line? Because you're one of the students, but you're a journalism yeah. student reporting potentially. Is it expected that you will go with the flow? This was the instructor to say, it's up to you. You can file on it. You can take part in it. But we were given free reign to decide, yeah. which also was a bit confusing because you're still new at this thing. You don't know what the right or the wrong thing is to do. And so... It was. I mean, some of us, some, I know some of the students just went in as part of the protests, didn't write about it. I dabbled between. So if I said on this day I'm reporting, then this day I'm reporting and I'm not technically part of the protests. But there was a camaraderie that did grow between the student journalists as well as the student leaders. Because when you're, when they're protesting or they're walking down Jurison Street in like their numbers, you're in front, they get to know your face, and then they get to also tell you um, the stories about what's happening with them, but also how they're organizing and where the hotspots may be. So it was a bit of a tricky thing, but we were given free reign to decide whether you're reporting on it or taking part in it mm. or doing both. Right. And that was a nice challenge to have, I guess, as a, as a student journalist. I think a very different and difficult challenge because you're kind of embedded because you're part of them, actually. Mm. I think as a journalist, generally, you, you, you're not necessarily part of what you're reporting on, whereas here you were part of them, mm. and they'd be looking at you specifically. Yeah. And that's why I was asking to what extent it was, there was an expectation of how you would report on what they were doing. But, of course, yeah, one tries to remain objective, I suppose, under those circumstances, and it's not always easy. So I think the issue for me is that, is that you know, Democracy does require a free press. I think that's really the point that I wanted to get to. And, of course, the Washington Post, democracy dies in darkness. That's their byline. And then I started thinking about manufacturing consent and manufactured consent and Noam Chomsky and the corporate takeover of the media. And, of course, the owner of Amazon is not Amazon. I've given it away. The owner of the Washington Post is Amazon, Jeff Bezos. So I don't know about that democracy dies in darkness and to what extent he manipulates himself, but that's speculation. So we've spoken about context. Now I want to get into consequences, actually. And obviously, psychiatric illness, emotional difficulties, that's what we're really going to be looking at. 
and of course PTSD. Gareth mentioned PTSD, he just dropped it glibly. ADHD, you know, we just throw it around. Post-traumatic stress disorder. Just to be clear, it's a clinical diagnosis from the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, version 5. We've now got a text revision. So they've added a new condition to psychiatry. We didn't ask for it, but they've given it to us. And uh, the DSM is kind of expanding, and you're thinking, where were all of these conditions before? But that's a separate discussion. In fact, if you listen to a podcast called Psychiatry Quo Vadis, you'll hear us talk about that a little bit. So what is PTSD? There's obviously an event and a consequence. And it's the one thing in psychiatry where we can point to an etiology, actually. This is what you experienced, this is what you were witness to, or this is what you have intimate knowledge of. And then, of course, after about 30 days, although before, you can also have what's called acute stress disorder, which is very similar to PTSD, but it's a timing thing. So within 30 days, it's acute stress disorder. After 30 days, post-traumatic stress disorder. And then you start to really experience the symptoms, the intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, nightmares, negative mood, avoidance of discussion or anything to do with what has traumatized you, and, of course, hyperarousal, startle, you know, kind of shock easily. So the issue of, of, of PTSD and journalists. So Anthony Feinstein, who I've interviewed for a previous podcast, together with James Brabazon, photographer who I think he's famous for the fact that there wasn't a war that he hadn't been to. He liked going to war. But by the time I interviewed him for the podcast, he said he sort of pulled back and he was in an advisory capacity. I think he was happy to have survived. Anyway, Anthony Feinstein did a a review of PTSD amongst journalists. And it was kind of interesting because what he said was, and this was over an 18-year period of journalists journalists covering war, he actually said that the um, level of PTSD symptoms was relatively low, which is kind of interesting because you might have thought it would be higher. He was dealing with a very specific demographic, Average age 40, predominantly male, highly educated, but with a lot of involvement. So for some reason, didn't have high levels of PTSD, but he made a very good point. He said, firstly, resilience doesn't guarantee immunity. And that when you look at the group data, which says it's low, don't forget the individual who's actually got it. So then there was more recent data coming out of the Canadians, Canadian Journalism Forum on Violence and Trauma. Now, that one was a little bit more instructive So they were looking at about 1,200 journalists, and they published in 2021 over the previous four years. Two-thirds suffered from anxiety, 46% depression, 15% PTSD. Just to put that into context, in the UK, just using it as a baseline, 4% prevalence. So significantly overrepresented. So your thoughts on PTSD, your experience, and you don't have to give me your personal experience as you feel, but in terms of what you've seen and how you understand amongst your colleagues. Start with you, Katie, and then we'll move through. So, you know, Prof, I was interested in the data that you had about actually the the signs of the one research study, the one, uh, you know, where PTSD signs were quite low. So that interests me. And I think it's got to do with a few factors, and I have come across it because one would expect with the kinds of stories that we do that we would really be, all of us, like frazzled wrecks. Yes. But there's such a, a high level of coping, and I don't know if that's a sign of anything, and you'll tell us, mm. but there's a, this 
amazing level of, I can do it now. I don't know if it's also got to do with the fact that we're not processing too much, but we're also talking about it. We're writing about it. We're reporting on it. And I think that must give us some kind of an outlet as opposed to just keeping it in. Do you think you're um, being desensitized? Completely. Because remember, you're Com- moving. No, completely. And you took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, because this is not just one story. Yeah. You're moving and you're moving and you're moving and you're yes. moving. And at what point does it just become well, that? That's it. And you feel completely desensitized at some point. Um, and to begin with, you might think, oh, I'll go for a debrief. I'll go for a session. Yeah. And then eventually you feel like, well, maybe it's actually not needed. Mm. The role of the editor then becomes all the more important right. to go, oh, Ahmed, you were into. And actually, I'd love to know from Ahmed, did you go for a debrief? Did your editors insist that you get debriefed? I had went for a few sessions uh, when I haven't when I had uh, gotten back, um, but I was going through therapy as well. So my therapist kind of was doing okay, that. okay. But there's a huge desensitization, and we see it manifest in different ways. Where now you can go to a store and you can eat a sandwich over a dead body because you're waiting for the mortuary van to come, <laughs> and then oh, but it's true. And you're waiting for the mortuary van to come because you're at a crime scene and you think, oh, I'm a bit hungry and there's a Woolies uh, at the engine garage across the road and that's what you do. No, no, well, you talk about desensitization as second-year medical students when we were given our corpse to dissect. By the end of the year, that's exactly what we were doing. We were just eating a sandwich while we were dissecting. And that wasn't, you know, and, and in a sense, you look back and you think, well, we were much younger. We were kind of disrespectful, actually. And it was disrespectful. So I'm just, again, another analogy. Yeah. In terms of you just become desensitized. Because yeah. at first it's like, oh my goodness. And then it's like, good morning. You know, and that's how... At the heart of COVID, Prof, um, walking and exercise was banned, if you yeah. remember, for whatever ridiculous reason. And then it was unbanned. <laughs> yes. And so my family and I decided to go, my husband and my young son of nine years old, we said, let's go for a Sunday morning walk. And as with most journalists, uh, my one addiction is this right. cell phone. I mean, I, I will admit it. It's an illness. I'm addicted to my cell phone. And I was on the phone and a friend of mine, we were walking to breakfast and a friend of mine called me to say, well, where are you? I'm about to arrive. And the car was driving past and saw me on my cell phone. So the mm-hmm. man jumped out, pulled a gun and literally pointed it at my son's head. And of course, that was quite strategic of him. And the whole point of the story is that, you know, we gave him what we did and gave him everything and, you know, called family and they came to get us. And we sat home and, you know, the family was debriefing. And I was like, well, let's go for ice cream. Uh, and my husband said, what do, you, what do you mean? I said, well, we were walking to a center where there was a restaurant to have breakfast. This guy has disrupted our day. It's like <laughs> three o'clock in the afternoon. Can we just please go for ice cream? And I don't know if that level of desensitization is healthy, unhealthy. I don't know if my kids are going to be sitting at a therapist's chair years from now saying my mother was a nut, but <laughs> listen, <laughs> that's how we cope. It's very pragmatic. It's like we've got to have ice cream now. Yeah. So at some point. So I think that is a concern, and I think it'll come to something that I want to mention, but I'll mention it now because I think that maybe there's a lot of silence. Because I think that stigma also comes into it because that was part of the initial title. And so the question is whether it's acceptable so I'm not put, pointing a finger because I think it's right that you have self-awareness where you say, I was troubled by what I saw. It really got to me. And I need to process this because I don't want to be stuck with it forever in that sense. But I do have a sense that maybe there is a silence. Now, I don't know if I'm correct. I'm just com- coming from the outside. And to what extent, the, you know, stigma is a real thing, actually. And to what extent there's a stigmatization 
if one comes forward, reveals, and then it's like, oh, so you can't go and do that story. So we'll have to deploy you, you know, to the entertainment section, which itself can be quite brutal. <laughs> so, you know, your thoughts on that, because now I've jumped ahead, but I think it's, it's relevant. Yeah. Funny enough, I tend to gravitate towards the entertainment <laughs> <Okay>. stories. <laughs> Um, and I find them just as a relief yes. from some of the day-to-day hard, difficult stories we tell. Right. But um, I think one of the responsibilities as well, as well, I've taken it upon myself as well, um, to just create a community around me mm. that supports and loves right. me and reminds me of being human. Mm. And so my family has been so gracious in the way they support me and my sister, you know, like small things like um, getting home late and just finding supper in the microwave ready for me or, you know, like just my room is packed up suddenly, you know, small things that just help me not worry about things like that, but also declutter my life. There's a certain order. Yeah. And that's very therapeutic. Yes. Actually. So I think it's small ways. And also like I, you know, now I've gotten into the habit of just giving myself a spa day once every Mm. two or three months, just so that I have something to look forward to. And I find that that almost helps me cope through anything. Because then I could be at a scene where there's dead bodies and I just say, no, this is fine. I've got uh, that little thing at the end of June and I'm going to have a great time. Absolutely. So, yeah. you've, so, you've, <laughs> so in a sense, you've, you've, you've created more balance. Yes. And you haven't been completely immersed in that and that only. Yeah. Because I think it can become overwhelming mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And you get sucked in. I don't know what your comment would be. Yeah, very much so. Um, you have to try your best to disconnect uh, from the disturbances that you will find. Yeah. Um, I've covered service delivery protests, uh, 2019 xenophobic attacks. Um, you have to disconnect from the violence. Uh, the July 2021 unrest, journalists were under attack. I was, yes. uh, in Katie's, I was in Katie's newsroom at the time as well. And that was the only time where we couldn't read uh, the, the protesters, you couldn't read the community. Normally, if you go into specific areas around Gauteng, you know, all right, this isn't an area I can yeah. go into. This is the area I need to perhaps hold back on. Um, but that disconnect is exceptionally important. And I think maybe that's one of the challenges I've faced in Turkey was you've never been in an earthquake before. You haven't seen this amount of devastation. Um, we were in Kahiso at the end of last year during the Zamazamas. Right. Um, there were these two uh, alleged uh, illegal miners which the community had brought out. And um, we were doing a live crossing with uh, Stephen Hritis at the time. And this community just took out massive branches about this this thick. And they just beat these two illegal miners or alleged illegal miners on live television. I think the, I think one of them had passed away uh, at a later stage. Um, but that disconnect is, is exceptionally important. I always find that. Uh, it actually allows you to tell the story uh, in the best possible way. Yeah. Um, and Katie speaks about, you know, being desensitized to it. Yeah. Um, and you become a lot, you think, all right, well, you know, two or three people died, you know, let's just carry on. Um, but the destruction to property is something that I hadn't realized is what we are desensitized to. Um, post 2021 July unrest, I drove down to KZN, um, in the September, and just off Peter Maritzburg, on the mall on the right-hand side, that mm-hmm. mall was completely destroyed. Um, and driving through with my family, 
and my mother and my two sisters were with me. And they looked at the shopping mall and thought, oh my God, this is completely destroyed. And they were shocked. And I was like, oh, well, you know, it's just another shopping mall which has been destroyed. Absolutely. So that, you know, the desensitization that you normally would have is, is, is relatively high for journalists. So I want to introduce something which for me was very interesting. Feinstein again, but in a different article, speaks about moral injury. So I'm talking about a consequence. And here he's talking about guilt and shame. Guilt insofar as you're making a career off the back of other people's suffering. So there's that. And then shame insofar as if I help, I'm disturbing the story. If I don't help, how could I not? And I think for me this is a real dilemma for, for, for journalists. And, and, and I've never really seen anybody write about this issue of moral injury as a potential threat. And you were mentioning something earlier, I think, in, in, in relation to the earthquakes of helping if I'm not much mistaken, I think I recall that. And so here, in a sense, you'd kind of stepped across the line. But this concept of moral injury, Rusinia, mm. reporter. So I don't agree with that okay. theory of, you know, you're, you're, you, you are profiteering of people's misery. Yes. I, I, I have to disagree with that because if I mm. were to agree with that, I don't think I'd be a journalist. I think telling people stories... And I couldn't be a psychiatrist. Yes. <laughs> also true. <laughs> And I think telling people stories is a really, really important part of our society and our history because we are the storytellers and the writers of history. And this is the way I see it. And, you know, the focus is always on the story. But what I love about what we're doing here, we're actually focusing on the storyteller. Yes. And I think that's really important. So moral injury, if journalism is done ethically, Prof, I don't believe that you're causing moral injury to the other party. But you've right. got to be ethical. Yes. And are there unethical journalists in our field? Absolutely. Sure. I mean, it's like, who am I to say that? They absolutely are. And are there people who, you know, orchestrate scenarios to look a little bit worse so when they take that picture? I'm, I'm sure they are. Right. And, and I can't claim that they aren't. But if you're ethical, if you're moral, if you believe in being a responsible journalist who tells facts and stories fairly and accurately and in a balanced way, because your story is also very different to your story. Yeah. And if I don't get both sides or three sides or four sides of a the story, then, then I don't have a holistic picture. Right. My worry with where we are in our media industry at the moment is that newsrooms are juniorized. And that there are so many stories happening and budgets are, are shrinking. You don't have the luxury of spending a lot of time on one story. Right. Because you've got editors like me <laughs> who give you six things in one day to do. Yep. And poor Katleho and poor Ahmed are going, okay, I don't know what to get to first. And it is a problem. Yep. But it's a consequence of shrinking budgets. It's a consequence of not paying journalists enough in the profession. So what happens? They leave. Mm-hmm. They leave because being a senior, like Wolf Blitzer in the field, you don't get many of those in South Africa. There are hardly any yes. uh, where you can actually make a proper, proper lucrative living by just being a field reporter. So they're going to PR, they're going to government. Um, you know, they start their own their, their own thing. So I know I've digressed a bit from moral no, no, you injury. Have, well, you've, 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 you've taken the conversation, yes. but I think the issue of moral injury was a concept that I wanted to introduce and to hear your mm. thoughts on it, because I haven't said that it is or it isn't. It's just something. I think the, the issue of when the journalist steps across the line when you're seeing something. But the question I wanted to ask was about personality. Are there certain personality types who are drawn to certain kinds of journalism, who are capable of uh, this involvement and this immersement, but yet detachment, 
and they're protected and they just don't get touched in that sense? I mean, I started as an actress. So I studied live performance, right? And I was all about the stage and also being in front of the camera. And then I, for a year in 2014, I was going to auditions. I had an agent. I was really trying to get in there. And it was so difficult because I felt like there's this plastic approach. You know, they people just put you in a box and you look like this kind of character and that's all you need to be doing. So then I thought to myself, what's the next best place for to be a storyteller? Because that's essentially what I'm asking to do. And then journalism came top of mind. And I immediately, as soon as I started studying, I felt that this is the right place to be. And I actually say I, I make a better actress now considering the people I've met, the conversations I've had, the experiences I've had, because now I'm almost like this full vessel of experiences. Um, but I think just to go back to your previous question about um, moral, moral injury, I think the only place I actually feel guilty is when there's this trend that's actually happening now in South Africa where people think they can run to the media You'll tell their story. Uh, government will be scared, terrified. Their problem will be resolved and then all is well. The fact of the matter is government isn't even afraid of us anymore. You can tell people stories, the most horrific thing. I think it has to take something like life esidimeni to like get people. Like it has to be. Nobody's been held accountable. Yeah, it's sad that you'll tell stories with the hope that things will change for the person. But now I do have a guilty feeling that says this might not even really help them much. That's a sad, sad, sad story. Yeah. Actually. So what I'd wanted to ask was whether an editor chooses carefully in terms of who they allocate to which assignment. Do you screen them before you send them out? Do you monitor them during, and do you check them afterwards? Not all editors are cut uh, from the same cloth. You right. should. Yeah. You always should. You should screen, you should monitor, you should check in. Sometimes it's just an, are you okay? Have you eaten? Right. Because, because that, for me, is critical. Have you eaten today? Did you get yourself any water before you deploy a reporter to, to, to a protest, because we've spoken a lot about protests, that you know are going to take the whole day, or a very long court case, you say, have you packed an apple in your bag? Do you have something to sustain you? And I think that level of empathy needs to be a far, uh, far more prevalent in newsrooms. Right. So we absolutely need to encourage that more and more to say watch, and watch for signs. Yes. Because they might tell you on the surface that they're okay but it spills out sideways. But that requires you to really know your journalists. Correct, correct. Interpersonally. And I think it's important for editors and seniors in newsrooms to understand and know their journalists and to watch them and to be aware of behavior that is slightly different and to know when they overreact about a very little inconsequential thing. That actually it is not about that little thing. It is a much bigger picture that is playing out here. And it's being able to understand that. And then, but that requires you to really know the person. That's a tell where you say, hang on a sec. That's out of character. What's going on here? I'm going to stop you there because I need to know, am I being timed? Am I? You're kidding me. I'm just getting into it. 
Okay, well, let me tell you what you missed. <laughs> I wanted to speak about mortality amongst journalists. I wanted to speak about the fact that the U.S. Commission of Fine Arts, under the request of the Fallen Journalists Memorial Foundation, are putting up a memorial for fallen journalists because of their respect for the First Amendment and freedom of the press. I wanted to remind people that we've got Section 16 of the Constitution, which guarantees press freedom. I wanted to speak about suicide, and I wanted to talk about Kevin Carter. I would advise you to go and see his iconic photographs, the one of the three AWB members about to be shot dead. They were essentially, in my mind, assassinated. You do not murder your prisoners. You take them prisoner. They were captive. I remember seeing that footage, the actual footage on TV that night, and it shocked me. Kevin Carter took that photograph, which means he witnessed the murder. Then there's the picture which you might have seen of a vulture and a starving child. That's Kevin Carter, Pulitzer Prize winner. He was next to Ken Osterbrook, who I mentioned earlier, shot dead next to him. Three months later, Kevin Carter committed suicide. And if you read the Guardian obituary from July of that year, it says the horrors he had witnessed over the years had finally caught up with him. And I think that's really the issue for me, is the horrors over the years. How do you remain detached? I keep thinking, well, that child was apparently making their way to a feeding center. Did Kevin Carter pick that child up and take them there? I'm not sure. He's standing watching this guy shoot these three men, for whatever reason, dead. Was there an appeal? He couldn't do that. So when we come to moral injury and detachment and getting involved, not getting involved, I think those things catch up with you, actually. And I know we're wrapping, but I think what's really important as well is the responsibility we have as editors and seniors in our newsrooms to our young reporters, yeah. because we don't want it to end up like that. Yeah. Because if it ends up in a suicide, then there has been no support. There have been no tools. We haven't helped along the way. And tools look different, Prof. They look different. Help has a very different feel to it. Sometimes it's just saying, take a week's leave. doesn't yeah. matter if you're out of it. Well, that's just important. That's right. But then you need to know your staff. You need to know. So you never wanted to get to that point. Thank you for sharing that story. Okay. And I wanted to touch on interpersonal relationships for journalists. What's the attrition? What is the consequence? I wanted to look at how they take care of their physical health because a solid physical foundation of physical health is one of your best coping mechanisms. And then, of course, I wanted to get into mitigation, training, support, silence, stigma. We won't get there. So I want to thank you for joining me for this podcast. So just a few personal thoughts. I'm sure they'll squeeze it in. So I think a truly free and democratic society requires a truly free and independent press, especially so in a fledgling democracy such as ours, South Africa. The role of journalists cannot be overemphasized and the need for their well-being overstated. And whilst journalists may hold personal views, we rely on them to inform objectively without fear or favor. And so I'm going to leave you with a few words from Matt Taibbi. I like Matt Taibbi very much. He was a contributing editor to Rolling Stone. He's also an author, New York Times bestseller, and probably most famous now because Elon Musk asked him to unpack the Twitter files, which he then presented in front of Congress. And he said something which wasn't in relation to South Africa, but think carefully about these words. In a society governed passively by free markets and free elections, Organized greed always defeats disorganized democracy. So 
I leave you with those thoughts. This has been Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Remember, there is no health without mental health, and until next time, take care.